If my name was like Mineralberg, that would also be an antonym to Goldstein. No, because okay. the no, opposite of don't. gold is not mineral. Yeah, it is. <laughs> no, he's right. What's but that's why rock is Rockefeller. The opposite of gold is coal, obviously. Racist. What? Oh, right. That sounds wrong. They both <laughs> come from the earth. <laughs> we cannot get into the gold <laughs> mineral thing. I don't know. Marijuana. Okay, ready? <laughs> Hi, folks. It's Dean. Uh, this is the Late Late Capitalism Show. Uh, this week, uh, I didn't actually think of a name for this series yet. Maybe you guys uh, could help us out. But this week, we are doing uh, another historical episode uh, led by my good friend. Yeah, it's me, Jesse. Time to put that history degree to the test. And before I dive into this uh, content warning, we're going to be talking about swearing. We're going to be talking about specifically in regards to Asian Canadians, a lot of racism and legislature that was put in place specifically to target them. Obviously, in the wake of what happened last week in Atlanta, if that's something you're particularly sensitive to, I don't blame you if you maybe want to give this episode a pause, wait a bit of time and come back to it. A lot of what we talk about is going to be pretty timeless, so you're not going to miss anything if you just need a bit of time away from that. I'm going to throw it over to my good friend to the left. Hi, my name is Chance. To my left is Megan. Yay. And folks, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, 2004. The CBC airs a special miniseries uh, called The Greatest Canadian, uh, which like was this long show. They had like all these like documentaries about different like historical figures in Canadian history. Uh, and they tabulated all these votes to determine uh, what individual made the greatest contribution to our beautiful so-called country. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already covered some of these. Uh, so we had our episode on Don Cherry. Don Cherry was number nine. Yeah, he was top <laughs> yeah. ten. Oh he was in the top Lord. ten is greatest so Canadian. Done, done the most for society. Cool. Yeah. We also, of course, covered uh, the world's most hated cunt, John A. McDonald. Sorry, I shouldn't use yeah. that word, but it's fitting for that man. I hate and him. He was number three. Yeah, I hate him so much. Yeah. We're going to kind of a creamy middle today we're going to be covering someone who was on the list not in the top 10 not in the top 20 not in the top 30 just cracking the top 50 at number 49 (laughs) william lyon mckenzie king which is so funny to be so far behind don cherry on the list of greatest canadians he's behind avril levine and you said said he was our longest running prime minister right yes here's interesting a quick little breakdown so William Lyon Mackenzie King. I'm just going to call him Mackenzie King moving forward. Yeah, he's got too long a name. He sort was... Sort of a dumbass name, too. By every single major uh, magazine, essentially voted as Canada's greatest prime minister. McLean's is the most recent one, who in 2016 put him at the very top of the list. Uh, despite that, it seems like nobody really cares. Certainly not 
the average greatest Canadian voter in 2004 and not my parents who weren't alive long after he died. Like my dad was alive when Mackenzie King was alive. And I ask, Oh, like what are your thoughts on him? He says, I don't know. Who's that? The only <laughs> thing that I knew about him before going into this was that he was the prime minister during wartime. Yes. During World War II. I don't II. even know which war. I just remember in history class, it was a war. So, so. we're going to get to <laughs> that. My extent of my knowledge. Would it blow your mind to know that he served a cumulative total of 22 years? Good God. <laughs> Yeah, as prime minister, long. he spent about thirty years in politics, and twenty-two of them he was the prime minister. Damn! And whenever he lost, he would just leave and then come yeah, back. He just fuck off and, and then be come back. prime minister. <laughs> it's incredible. He is a very fascinating figure. A lot of what his legacy is is based on what he did during the Second World War. I talked about some stuff leading up to that, including a few important things, but a lot of what this is is going to be from like 1930 onwards because that's where the bulk of his reputation comes from. One of the strangest men in Canadian political history, a very fascinating story that begins December 17th, 1874 in Berlin, Ontario. Uh, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why they changed the name. Uh, to Kitchener. <laughs> exactly. His parents were John King and Isabel Grace McKenzie, and William Lyon McKenzie King was named after his maternal oh grandfather. His mom's like a feminist icon, hyphenating his last name <laughs> at that right. time. <laughs> so his grandfather was William Lyon McKenzie, who was Toronto's first mayor, and he was also the leader of the Upper Canadian Rebellion of 1837. His father, John King, was a lawyer and eventually became a professor professor of law at U of T. I'm sorry. We got to touch on William Lyon McKenzie Please. for a little bit because he was, he's also a very interesting figure. Yeah, I hate him. In <laughs> Canadian, he like, I don't, I, I didn't dive too deep into his politics, but he uh, basically was like the upper Ca Canada was rebellion was the Canadian attempt at the revolutionary war. Pretty as much. As far as yeah, I can tell. More or less. Um, and basically the, the Frenchmen in lower Canada were already sort of pissed off that they were being subjugated. Uh, so they rebelled, and then the Upper Canada guys were like, oh, like that's a good idea. We'll do that, too. <laughs> uh, so uh, he starts this rebellion, uh, which is owned within like yeah. the first months of its starting. Pathetic. Yeah. So then he uh, flees to the States, starts to like wage guerrilla war, crossing the border and like attacking British troops in Canada. Uh, and then the U.S. government is like, hey, uh, we have like a peace treaty with Britain, so you can't like be fighting them from our soil because you're going to start another massive war with them, so right. fuck off. Uh, and he was <laughs> like sent to prison uh, for doing that. And then, like, this is the most interesting part, is that the like British Empire just decided to forgive him, yeah. and then he just went back to Canada and went back to politics in Canada. He became the mayor. Yeah. They're just like, all right, man, you learned your lesson. You know? <laughs> and then, and then he was sorry. fine. And they just tussled his, yeah. his hair. You little scam. Like the most Canadian uh, response ever. It's just like, oh, whatever, fine. <laughs> so that's his namesake. Great start. Uh, the family, their status could best be described as petit gentry, as in they had servants, slaves, to work in their house, but they could just barely afford to pay them. And if there was any financial instability whatsoever, they'd basically be in the poorhouse. That's because John King's law practice was pretty terrible. They were operating in a small town. It's Kitchener. What possible legal disputes could there be other than like settling wills? 
So he eventually, uh, Mackenzie King finds himself graduating public school and high school. He has tutors growing up. He's a really good student. He's a smart guy. He ends up going to the University of Toronto. Yes. Yeah. I, I also found another funny anecdote that I think is telling about King. Uh, so he says that he first became interested in politics at the age of seven when he heard Prime Minister John A. Macdonald speak uh, in an 1882 election campaign. Uh, and this is a quote from his diary. Uh, Sir John A. was presented with some flowers by a pretty young lady whom he thanked with an embrace. I could do nothing but envy him and decided that the politi- that politics had its rewards. Why so he's was just he a fucking... at seven? So this that is, is really young. That is interesting. I want to f- come back to that at the end because yeah. I have some theories on Mackenzie King. I, like, I, I'm just going to say like right up front, my theory on King, and we'll see this as we go, is that he is possibly the world's biggest simp ever see he's like completely enthralled by a lot of like people who he considers like great masculine leaders that he really wasn't yeah (laughs) he had some interesting feelings which i'm going to cover in just a moment so he was raised presbyterian and he would cite his faith as a driving force in his political and social goals so he goes to the university of toronto gets the first of five degrees from across canada's universities Uh, i have six so nbd actually there you go (laughs) he got a ba an llb and an ma from the university of toronto where he was also one of the founding members of their kappa alpha society now i looked this up expecting to find skull and bone shit yeah it's pretty boring It's pretty boring. It literally is just an academic society. It's the oldest one in the West, but the Toronto chapter wasn't founded until 1892. So about 70 years after most of the American chapters were founded. So King's most famous moment at the University of Toronto there's two things to highlight. First, he would meet Arthur Meehan, a man who would become his main political rival, especially during the uh, mid 1910s and early 1920s. And two, he would actually organize a student protest at the University of Toronto. <gasps> cool. The student strike of 1895 uh, started February 15th, 1895, when, quote, the largest mass meeting in the history of the university was held at Wardell's Hall. Since then demolished, it's a large hall on the west side of Spadina Avenue, about half a block from College Street. The hall was often used for religious and political meetings. A large sign greeted those entering the building. Gentlemen will please not spit on the floor. <laughs> So if you have to put a sign up, clearly (laughs) this has been a long time problem. 700 students attended this strike, including a hundred women. And they were all participating for the right to spit on the floor. That's right. (laughs) The immediate cause of the demonstration was this dismissal by the Ontario government of popular university college professor of Latin, William Dale, which had been publicly announced earlier in the day. The news of the firing had galvanized the student body. William Lyon Mackenzie King called Billy by his friends Cute. a member of the class of 95 and a future prime minister of canada noted in his diary i was that excited that i could not keep still my blood fairly boiled i scarcely ate any lunch <laughs> i'm so worked up <laughs> okay. about my professor getting fired i don't I know eat. anything about this professor but i like to imagine it was like a jordan peterson situation oh yeah it for sure <laughs> was he just got so mad <laughs> <laughs> a motion was introduced at the meeting by the rather solemn moon-faced Billy King <laughs> to abstain from attendance at lectures of univer- at University College until a proper investigation be granted by the provincial government into the difficulties existing at the university. A journalist later wrote that King, and this is so funny to me, electrified his hearers by his denunciation of the age-old cult of tyranny just as his grandfather William Lyon Mackenzie had done in the 1837 rebellion. That's right. <laughs> Campus warfare, baby! <laughs> this is the culture war. 
over this is a prop so getting yeah, fired. They, 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 this yeah, is this ben is Shapiro, cancel culture. Jordan yeah. Peterson, Steven Crowder shit, but in 1895. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> so the publisher of the campus newspaper also speaks at this rally. The boycott of classes was successful. George Wrong, that's his real name, the professor of history, wrote to his father-in-law, Chancellor Edward Blake, then a member of parliament in England, that only one student showed up to any of his lectures. It's pretty good. Yeah. It should be also noted that Mackenzie King was in close contact with Vice Chancellor William Mullock, for whom the strike provided a chance to embarrass his rival, Chancellor Edward Blake and President James Loudon. It's no coincidence that Chancellor Mullock would invite King to join him in Ottawa, but five years later, serving a role in the Department of Labor as a deputy minister. So essentially, by organizing this student strike, it helped Mullock embarrass his chief rivals in the university. And then just, oh, coincidentally, five years later, he gets William Lyon Mackenzie King a job in politics. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not only as a deputy uh, labor minister, but I think the first. Yes. So he yeah. was actually, he was the first so labor they, minister. So they yeah. made that job for him. Essentially. Yeah, it's literally make work. Yeah. So it, because it's labor, do you get it? The Oh, that's good. Department yeah. of Labor was basically just kind of created because prior to that, there wasn't really much care. Yeah, no one gave a fuck good. at all. <laughs> so it should be noted that King himself was a really big proponent of the Settlement House movement, which was a quite <laughs> backward social movement originated in the United Kingdom that believed that poor people could be educated to not be poor if you had a middle class person stay in a house with them. Uh, <laughs> sort of like an exchange program. Oh, I like of. that. Like it white was, swap. Like the, <laughs> they, give, they give the, the middle class family a poor person, so yeah, you yeah. Live with it's pretty close. And it was the second wave of social welfare, where the first wave is, of course, like poor houses and workhouses. They're like, oh, that's kind of inhumane. All right, what if we taught them not to be poor by putting Mary Poppins in their house? <laughs> yeah, and turns out that didn't work either. Uh, they're still trying to figure out how to not make people poor. I wonder if they'll ever get there. We should just mm. do that again. Yeah, why not? For sure, I'd love that. Yeah. So during his time as deputy minister in the Department of Labor, he focused mostly on, well, labor. He was called in to arbitrate a labor dispute in Alberta mine in 1906, and he would use his experience to sponsor the Industrial Disputes Investigation Act the following year. Look, I read this act. Nothing really important in there. It essentially just gives a framework for these disputes to be better arbitrated with an independent party. That's it. Okay. In 1901, King's roommate and his best friend, Henry Albert Harper, died heroically during a skating party when a young woman fell through the ice on the partly frozen Ottawa River. Harper dove into the water to try and save her and perished in the attempt. King led the effort to raise a memorial to Harper, which resulted in the creation of the Sir Galahad statue on Parliament Hill in 1905. In 1906, King published a memoir of Harper entitled The Secret of Heroism. Did the girl live? That does not specify. I don't believe so. (laughs) That's not super heroic. He was just being a bitch and died with her. So again, uh, harsh. (laughs) A a key thing to remember about King is that uh, he was a weirdo and a loser, and practically no one liked him. Yeah, and this Uh, is his best friend. Yeah, that dies in a scene where he himself was like, "Oh fuck!" (laughs) Like. A, it was uh, one of his only friends because yeah. he really, again, many people could not fucking stand being in a room with L- William Lyon Mackenzie King. Like uh, a genuine oddball. Yeah, just like a weird guy. Uncomfortable. Like, he sounds, yeah, fucked energy. As of right now, it sounds like anything that happened in his life, he would turn into a really big deal. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
professor yeah. gets fired i gotta make the largest fucking uh protest like friend dies i gotta make a memorial yeah so it seems like essay, it seems yeah. like shit like a like a weirdo would yeah do. And, but again it's it's this idolization of like the these massive male figures in his life right yeah yeah true, true. he's also a bit of a crank like there's a specific thing i'm going to touch on in a minute talking about oh how everything in his life is a big deal he was a very spiteful individual as you're going to find out <laughs> so he would be first elected to parliament as a liberal in the 1908 by-election and then in 1909 he was no longer the deputy minister of labor but the minister of labor he wrote the combines investigation act in 1910 wouldn't be implemented until about 1923 we'll get to that the combines act was a piece of anti-monopoly legislature that prohibited misleading and advertising bid rigging price fixing and other means of limiting competition so it would be revised again in 1952 and then amended in 1969 now a funny thing about the act it actually allowed non-police officers uh privileges to enter premises without a judicially issued search warrant and seize evidence that they suspected was in relation to the violation of the act so if you think <laughs> someone like false advertised or ripped you off you could just go into the walk into the walmart whoa and just take whatever it was and be like this is evidence you had to of course then present it in court you couldn't just steal it but for some reason he was like yeah that's fine which is awesome (laughs) did that ever get amended i imagine it got amended (laughs) so funnily (laughs) enough uh this would actually culminate in a raid of the offices of the edmonton journal sometime later and the supreme court ruled essentially that you can't do this, that these provisions of the act were inoperable because they violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So it was repealed in 86, July 1986, and replaced with the Competition Act, which is also just an anti-minority, or sorry, anti, well, (laughs) Well, anti-minority is not incorrect, but an anti-monopoly act. Very interesting piece of legislature that has way more to it than you would think, given that it was written in 1910. Yeah. So he would lose re-election in 1911, seemingly... I mean, such a force of personality. How could he lose? He would then turn his focus to lecturing. He would be hired by American millionaire John D. Rockefeller. Truly one of the greatest lizard people to ever live. An all-time monster. He was hired in June of 1914 to head the Rockefeller Foundation's Department of Industrial Research. Oh, shit. So I should note that he was hired in 1914, but he had been advising Rockefeller as early as 1913. This is important. Because 1913 marked the Colorado Coalfield War, Mm -hmm. which was a labor uprising between the United Mine Workers of America and the anti-strike scabs controlled by John D. Rockefeller. Oh, no. The war would climax with the Ludlow Massacre in which a 1,200-person tent city was attacked by these strike breakers. 21 people would die during the massacre, and the United Union mine workers would respond with attacks of their own, escalating tensions throughout the rest of the war. 200 people died during the Colorado Coalfield Wars. The massacre yeah. sparked nationwide reproach for the Rockefellers. There were actually protests outside the Rockefeller building in New York City. This is the guy Mackenzie King was working with. Mm. Oh, good. Yeah. And not only not, not only working for, but like specifically his job was to fix this situation yeah. in a mo- in the most PR friendly way possible. Exactly. Basically. And it seemed to <laughs> Gun work. Gun him down. Because uh, it's not something that's taught about even in Colorado to this day. So, yeah. So uh, the lizard people won. Mackenzie King would eventually leave in 1917, returning to politics. The liberals, led by Wilfrid Laurier, they were in opposition to conscription during the First World War. Uh, this was the issue that would dominate the election. Conscription in Canada has always been the same way, where Quebec 
despises it because they have no fucking ties to the crown. Why would they want to send their men to die in a pointless war, especially the first fucking world war? And the rest of Canada is like, yeah, woo, we fucking love the pedophiles that <laughs> wear the crown. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so Laurier and the liberals lose to Robert Borden and the conservatives, largely because the conservatives support conscription, as does the rest of Canada. Uh, King would run in this election and actually lose his constituency in North York, which was <laughs> the one his grandfather had once represented years prior. Uh, he would rebound, though, and actually win the liberal leadership race two years later in 1919, outmaneuvering his opponents by embracing Laurier's legacy, but also, most importantly, because he had the support of Ernest Lapointe. Ernest Lapointe was basically the, and pardon the pun, kingmaker for any kind of liberal politician in Canada because he controlled Quebec. Mackenzie King couldn't speak French at all. Ever in his career? No. Not, not a word. Wow. But despite He's prime this, minister for 22 years. He won Quebec every single election he had except for the one that we're going to touch on because Ernest Lapointe was just such a beloved and dominant figure in the province. In fact, Lapointe was going to be his co-prime minister in 1941, but he died in 1941. So that was also a huge crippling blow for the liberals at that time because this was their guy. This was the institution Quebec. He was basically like the French Canadian Kennedy, you know, if he's on the fucking ballot he's going to win yeah. and the people he supports are going to win incredible and he didn't even have to use dead people to do it no he was like a legit just like beloved political figure so with the support of Ernest Lapointe, King becomes the liberal leader. They run in the 1921 election and win a minority government, the smallest minority government in Canadian history. 235 Shit. seats were up for grabs. They won 118. Mm. Mm-hmm. Damn. Funny. So straddling the line Arthur Meehan his old university rival was leading the conservative party they won 49 seats they weren't the second place party though the progressive party won 58 a party based solely out of the west coast and the prairies led by a man named Creer at the time eventually it would be taken over by J.S. Woodsworth a name you probably do know who would then be supplanted by Tommy Douglas Canada's greatest Canadian that's there right. He's number one. Oh, we will yay. definitely be doing an episode on him uh, sometime. He's a pimp. So essentially, King's government needed the support of the Progressive Party, who refused to be the official opposition. The Conservatives were the official opposition, even though they were in third, because the Progressives were like, yeah, we don't really need that. We're just doing our own thing. Mm-hmm. But they had the leverage over King. So he had to tread this very fine line of trying to rebuild Canada's economy post First World War, mostly through tariffs, but not stepping on the toes of the Prairie Party. Yeah. Who controlled everything yeah. that he and was going to like, do. And despite like what we said, King was very involved with labor, of course, and like wrote the these laws and bills that became like these antitrust acts and these anti-monopoly bills. Uh, but he was by no means a, a socialist. He, he detested socialism. Yeah. And he really did not agree with the progressive party at all, uh, at all. (laughs) He just sort of had to like, you know, as as liberals love to do. What's the word I'm looking for? He was towing the line. He's towing the line. He was, what's the word that where you acquiesce? I guess acquiesce. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. He knew that he had to give to the progressive party when he needed any kind of legislature passed. He was pretty much the ultimate centrist. An enlightened centrist, uh, you could yes, say. enlightened. Well, That's he had right. five degrees. <laughs> That's so, not enlightened. That means l- shit. The liberals would pass the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1923, a very famous piece of anti-Asian legislature in it Canadian history. just straight history. up, it, like, if you're from China, you cannot come to Canada. There were four things that could not even guarantee you getting in, but 
grant you permission to get like a special pass. You had to be a diplomat, which would more often than not, you know, guarantee you're emigrating a foreign student not as much of a slam dunk you had to get a special circumstance granted by the minister of immigration which actually interestingly enough is the class that former governor general adrian clarkson's family fell under oh or you had to be a merchant and even then once again these are not guarantees this is just for you to qualify what was this act called again sorry so there was a different official name but it's known as the chinese exclusion act Mm. because that's what it did mm-hmm. excluded any kind of Chinese immigrant. And this was of course due in part to the Chinese panic, the yellow panic that the West coast saw even at the turn of the 20th century. And just, you know, well, we also, yeah, had the head tax like a hundred years, before generations as well. yeah. of entrenched anti-Asian sentiment in this country and <laughs> most countries around the fucking world. Yeah. King himself would write in college, a paper talking basically about how, it's important for the health of Canada to a- allow as few Asian people yes. into the country as possible. Uh, <sighs> just be a, it, it's bad for, for the stock and That's for the yeah for the health of the nation. He was a yeah. white stock kind of guy. The, yeah. the, the official name of the act was the Chinese Immigration Act. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So they would call a federal election in 1925 and setting the stage for a proud liberal tradition of being hampered in your election by a massive sponsorship scandal. The liberals would be rocked by the Boharnay scandal, which was essentially Boko Haram, the Boko Haram scandal. Uh, (laughs) So they gave preferential contracts to this one donor to create a hydroelectric dam on the St. Lawrence River. And when this came out, they donated $700,000. That's at the time. That's Mm -hmm. insane. Millions of dollars to the Liberal Party. That being said, this didn't actually defeat the liberals. They just didn't do very well. Mm-hmm. It was during this period of political hardship that Mackenzie King would make a campaign stopover in Kingston, Ontario. Hey, while here, he would meet with a trusted advisor, Rachel Blaney. Blaney was the prime minister's most trusted medium. Me- oh, hmm. hey, he walks into the house of one of his <laughs> fortune tellers and no one notices, says historian Alan Levine, author of the book. And I'm going to read the whole title. King William Lyon Mackenzie King, a life guided by the hand of destiny. Wait, <laughs> Wait, that he's... sounds like it has seven like yes. colons in it. <laughs> yeah, what there's is a happening? lot of This guy sounds like a fucking quack. It's the middle of the afternoon and he's going to get his fortune told and talk to someone and he got away with it. The reporters didn't even mind. <laughs> What the fuck does that mean? He, nobody asked him questions about this until 1948. It's his personal yeah. time. So King ended up losing his own seat. Apparently the medium did not really help him all that much. And the party dropped to 101 seats following the federal election. So the conservatives went 116. Remember the threshold is... 117 Mm -hmm. right so despite the fact that he lost his seat and the liberals lost you know 17 seats they still didn't lose control because they had a coalition with the progressive party Mm. so king holds on to power by his fingernails another reason why arthur Meehan would go on to despise him so much is he just kept clinging on to power with everything available to him now this famously led to one of the most fun scandals in canadian history the king bing affair Ooh. The what affair? King Bing. This King is Bing. The constitutional crisis of 1926. Oh, that's fucking cool. <laughs> Essentially, the governor general, Lord Bing, uh, he asked him to dissolve parliament and call another election. Bing, however, declined the request, which was the first time this had ever happened, and then basically chose me and the conservatives to be the interim government because they had the most seats. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if the 
governor general did that now yeah uh, trust me there's a reason why that hasn't happened since yeah Yeah. so because we would just straight up not be a constitutional monarchy anymore so me and the conservatives he makes them the government and then they lose a non-confidence vote which essentially means there's nobody in charge for about a Uh, year that's (laughs) fucking cool man so they had anarchy in the streets Uh, sucking fucking sucking and fucking wherever you please sonking funking the whole the whole lot of it so this then leads to another election a year after an election the liberals would win the 1926 election with a minority government what somehow (laughs) and i've done so much reading on this and i don't know how they won but they did after all of that bullshit we only have a couple parties it's gonna be one of the bad ones regardless so it's true remember how i said he could be a very spiteful man and as chance noted that everything that happens is a big thing for him it's a really fucking big deal he would immediately set to clarifying the position of the government general with governor general within the government. <laughs> they ceased to be a representative of the British government and became a representative of the crown. This was another step towards King's goal of increasing Canadian autonomy from the British empire. Remember, he was also an anti-conscription guy. He spent a lot of his time trying to give more power to the provinces to work with the federal government, as opposed to making everything have to pass, you know, yeah. Royal ascent. And he's, and he's riding that legacy of his, his grandfather, right? Exactly. So he does have some genuine, Maybe not anti-colonial, but anti-imperial notions where he's like, oh, we shouldn't be governed by Britain. Or just more like anti-monarchy. Uh, yeah. Like I just suppose. more, yeah. Ju- I'm just against the queen. Yeah. Or the king. So he does everything in his power to essentially <laughs> throttle the power of the governor general immediately after the governor general nearly cost him his seat as prime minister. Which is like fair enough. I imagine he, it was he, awesome. he writes down in the legislation, the governor general can only be someone who's been to space. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> someone who quizzes people on space facts. They need to be a girl boss it has to be a girl boss i'm sorry so a cool thing that does happen at this time is uh he moves towards greater natural or nationalization of natural resources and he also creates the first old age pension system in collaboration with provincial governments Mm -hmm. that's good shit yeah so like there's a lot of the things that he passed during like this uh era was like as far as i understood it specifically because uh, the progressives yeah, he was were pushed to yeah, do so. putting his, his ass to the fire. It's also one of those things where it makes you look really good if you're like, oh, we don't want any opposition through everything, and then people get scared. Yeah. They're like, what the fuck are you going to do? And then they're like, no, we're giving things to you. Mm. Like That, that kind of wins some people over, right? What would not win people over is his response to the Great Depression. So they're in power... 1929, 1930, uh, pretty bad years, really all around the world. The Great Depression happens. He felt that the crisis was a temporary swing of the business cycle and that the economy would soon recover without government intervention. Just prior to the 1930 election, King carelessly remarked that he would not give a five cent piece to Tory provincial governments for unemployment relief. Oh, does that uh, sound familiar? Yeah. Uh-oh. Liberals shitting on entire sections yeah. of a country controlled by the other party. Yeah. Yeah. Flyover states. Huh. Weird. This would cost him dearly as it galvanized the conservative campaign under all-time political dud R.B. Bennett, one of the dumbest, stupidest men in politics. King was painted as being out of touch with the wants and needs of ordinary people. The liberals still performed well, actually getting more votes than they did in 1926, but the conservatives were able to form a majority government finally ousting king they broke through in the west they broke through everywhere they needed to so even though liberals got more votes than they did in years past they couldn't win the seats it's crazy that we went from uh 
Well, based on the track record of the liberal government at the time, it's not crazy. But thinking about uh, the context of now with the, where the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party is, to think that the Conservative Party was the one that got <laughs> voted in right after the Great Depression is crazy. Not even right after, just literally in the midst well, of... The, yeah, yeah, but you know what I mean. People after being like, this Black is what we Friday. need. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is not usually how things pan out. It was very fu- it, They probably wouldn't have won if King hadn't have just shit on them. Yeah. Mm. Because, and we're going to touch on this, they had a lot of similar ideas. Um, when you brought up the Great Depression, I thought it'd be a really funny joke to think of uh, Mackenzie King like sitting in his bed like wearing like a tank top or something. Yeah, eating with a ton of ice cream. But like yeah. he's on his phone and he's texting a girl and he's like, hey, you up? <laughs> like, what, what are you, I have the Great Depression. What are you, what are you, <laughs> I shouldn't what are, be alone Hey right girl, now. what are you up to? I lost to Bennett. I yeah. shouldn't be alone. Yeah. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> My <laughs> best friend died 29 years ago. <laughs> 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 what, are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing to me? So King's loss <laughs> affected him deeply. It was during his time as opposition leader that King would consult the spirits on a regular basis. After losing power in the 1930s, King would host his own seances to communicate with the spirits of Leonardo da Vinci, Wilfred Laurier, Theodore yeah. Roosevelt, and most importantly, his mother. Oh, that's oh, so fucking cool. This is not cool. even like horoscope shit. It's no, like I want to talk to this specific historical yes. figure. Yeah, this is please connect yes, me. Sorry, Megan. This is real shit. This what? isn't that horoscope. Yeah. This is a man in his fifties. As well. This is wild. He always mm-hmm. felt his mother was with him, and he would comment in the diary of spirits visiting him in the middle of the night or in his dreams. Mommy Milky. <laughs> mommy Milky. Mommy ectoplasm. Okay, but your mom is one thing. Like, maybe if there's ghosts, that would be nah, the kind of ghost that would talk to you. Nah, I don't think Leonardo weird. da Vinci would be a ghost that's interested in you. You never know. So Unless his, <laughs> his mom might have been a huge hoe and sleeping with Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, I guess. So. He would write down all of his nutty dreams. These spiritual consultations would consider would continue long after he regained power. He looked for ways to communicate with the dead and he found some reassurance and the mediums always told him what he wanted to hear anyways. Uh, They came to Ottawa. They visited him regularly and no one seemed to notice. He had these women staying with him in Laurier house in Ottawa and visiting him and no one asked any questions. This is from that book again. Yeah. The women were the mediums or the women were the ghosts. So what people, tra- what people thought was that these were prostitutes coming to see him. Oh no. Yeah. Cause <laughs> these are just King, mediums. Uh, another really important fact about King is that he never married. No, he was unmarried, oh. a lifelong yeah. bachelor. Honestly, these could have just been, you know what? I feel like this is a great cover up. Like if you were seeing prostitutes, just be like, no, she was a medium. And it's like, well, why was she talking about Leonardo da Vinci? And instead of being like, that's my fetish. It's like, no, no, she was, she constantly, him from the dead. Yeah. She wasn't acting like my mother while See, we were in bed together. I wish that was true, but no, this man never had a wife. He did have some gal pals of yeah. whom he was fond, oh. but he, there's nothing. We don't even know if he fucked. Like, He's a gay man. That's it, what I Many believe. people think that he could have been. It's sort of I the literature is unclear. I am that. certain that he was gay, and we'll touch on that more at the end. Yeah. But Dean, spirituality, what do yeah, you got? So he was a spiritualist. But as I found this actually really, really interesting article, it was a McLean's article that came out in like 1951. Uh, that was like shortly after he died. Yeah, and, and like this was like right after he died. All of this news came out about his spiritualism and his seances, <laughs> yeah. which uh, him and the liberal government kept under very tight wraps mm-hmm. because they didn't want people to think. Oh, we're going to war because <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci told our leader he, to do so. Yeah, he's a fucking nut job. Well, yeah. that's that's what happened in Assassin's Creed. That's why that that remember that's yeah. that's the thing he gave. He, he was going back to his memories <laughs> in, the, right. in the anime. He was fighting the Templars. <laughs> Mackenzie yeah. King was the ultimate assassin. <laughs> 
But yeah, no, he kept up like uh, he to his dying day was a Presbyterian. He did not identify as a spiritualist, which they had their own church and religion at that point. Right. So uh, but he did like hang out with mediums all the time. I love to commune to the dead. He talked to Da Vinci. He talked to Laurier. He would talk to FDR after FDR yes, passed. That's so constantly. awesome. Oh, that's cool. they, they knew each other in real life <laughs> as well. He also talked to his mother, his siblings, and his dead dogs yeah. he would communicate with. Bark? Uh, <laughs> just barking in the room with a prostitute? Uh, uh, according to King, he was very clear in his diary that he never consulted ghosts uh, on matters of state or any governance. Uh, <laughs> this is personal. He, he simply, personal life. Yeah, he simply wanted to chat and vibe. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, this is this is strictly non-business. Leonardo, yeah. Leonardo da Vinci, what should I do? Have you tried fucking the Chinese? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've already done that. Okay, well, funny you mention that. Uh, because despite this, uh, there are some interviews uh, with uh, these seance masters, these mediums that he consorted with, uh, that said that he did talk to FDR somewhat frequently about political matters. Of course. Uh, mostly about whether or not he should retire or not. Oh, okay. uh, and FDR would give him the ghost of FDR, I should yeah. say, no, w- no. would give him uh, conflicting answers. Uh, FDR, all, although also later. Uh, noted uh, <laughs> that he should watch out for a- Asia because there will be a war in the Far East soon, <laughs> which actually he said that a couple years before oh, the, the Korean, Korean war, war happened. To be fair. Yeah, Damn. of course there's going to be a war there because you keep interfering there. <laughs> yeah, the writing's pretty much also, on the wall. that's like the region with the largest amount of people in the world. Yeah. If there's going to be a conflict somewhere, yeah. like law of large numbers. <laughs> Liter- yeah, literally just like poking it with a stick constantly and then being like, something might happen. That They're is funny to, to think, around. like, I'm not going to say for sure ghosts aren't real, et cetera, et cetera. They are real, but, for the record. Um, it is funny to think that the mediums were just, like, making up shit, which then <laughs> oh, he would, like, totally would, were. he Definitely. would then govern the country with these random people's advice. That is cool. Yeah. Uh, like, also ghosts a, are definitely real, but they do not want to fucking spend their days no. talking to William Lyne McKenzie <laughs> King. One day I'll, I'll give you guys a rundown. There's also a long history of the RCMP using uh, mediums during their oh, investigations in Canada. Yes. What the fuck? Oh, hell yeah. yeah so so cool. I'll, I'll give you guys a rundown I on that one one day. Yeah. I can't say that the, surprises the me. The general consensus uh, on King spiritualism is that he never really got over not seeing his mother on her deathbed because he was busy campaigning when he was a young man. Uh, so when he was, uh, a friend suggested like, oh, you should speak to Etta Wright, who is this like American medium. He jumped at the opportunity. I have an excerpt from this Please. article. <laughs> Mrs. Wright used a silver trumpet from which at her seances, the voice of the d- departed would proceed. <laughs> An old friend of Mr. King recalled she'd put the trumpet in the middle of the circle and it would roll around and stop in front of the person about to receive a message. I remember the thing rolling up to me and giving me quite a a rap on the shin. Uh, The voice came out did sound very much like a person I knew who had died. However, I was a bit shaken when I got when she got a hold of someone who was supposed to be French. The trumpet spoke very bad French. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Just him seeing like Rachel and Kingston. It's like, oh, the spirits are telling me that every woman named Rachel should be given ten thousand dollars. <laughs> well, I suppose. Yeah, I guess so. Crazy. They, they wouldn't lie. That's generally how these things tend yeah. to work. So, very complex man, completely unable to associate with anyone in the world of the living, so he depends on the world of the dead. Yeah, and again, like gravitating to these these great figures in history that he speaks to, uh, the, again, these, these monumental like leaders that he idolizes. So strange. 
this is the coolest. Like if, if the story just ended there and I didn't tell you any of the stuff I'm going to tell you in a minute, it'd be like the coolest prime minister ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just sounds like a theater kid got a lot of power at one point. Pretty much. Yeah. So after his loss, King stays on as opposition leader where it was his policy to refrain from offering advice or alternative policies to what the conservatives were doing. Indeed, his policy preferences were not much different from RB Bennett's and he let the conservative government have its way on every issue imaginable. Well, thank God liberals have moved away from that. Absolutely. <laughs> And you know what? Fittingly, though he gave the impression of sympathy with progressive and liberal causes, kneeling in the kente cloth at the Capitol, for instance, of course, uh, he had no enthusiasm for the New Deal of American President Franklin D. Roosevelt, which Bennett eventually tried to emulate after floundering without solutions for several years. (laughs) And he never advocated massive government action to alleviate depression in Canada. However, King would change his tune when the depression worsened. Huh. By 1935, he demonstrated a newfound commitment to the poor and underprivileged, speaking of a new era where poverty, adversity, want, and misery are the enemies which liberalism will seek to banish from the land. The 1935 what federal election. What was it election, before? If not poverty and misery, just Asian people? Was well, yeah. that the gist? Okay. Before it was the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Malaysians, the Koreans. You know, he made sure to mention Chinese four or five times in that. It was just a run-on sentence of slurs. And you know what? That's what people wanted in 1911. (laughs) Yeah, right. There's a reason why he won elections. So in 1935, federal election comes in. He's, he pledges to banish poverty, adversity, want, and misery from the land. They run on what is admittedly a very good slogan of king or chaos. Yeah. Oh, nice. And they win 171 out of the 235 seats which is a major majority, the first one King has ever had. Immediately sets to work signing the Reciprocal Trade Agreement of 1935. It's just a big trade deal between Canada and the United States, but it's important because it helped assuage a lot of bad blood between the two parties, which sprang up in the 1930s. As you know, post-Depression, nobody's economy was doing particularly well, so there were more tariffs on products going in and out of Canada and the U.S., and that just got them pissed off at each other. So this is signed. It helps kickstart both economies. He implemented relief programs such as the National Housing Act and the National Employment Commission. Remember, he had to be dragged kicking and screaming towards these more progressive ideas. He wouldn't have done this if the country was even 10% better than it was when he inherited it. This was all his way to try and kickstart the economy and make things livable. He would actually start the CBC in 1936, Trans-Canada Airlines, which would become Air Canada in 1937, and the National Film Board in 1939. Damn. In the 1938, he nationalized the Bank of Canada into a crown corporation. He's getting a lot done in three years. King grew frustrated with the West's preference for the CCF, however, the Canadian Commonwealth, or yeah, Canadian Commonwealth Federation, cooperation. Anyways, it's the Socialist Party, essentially. He said that the Prairie Dust Bowl was, quote, part of the U.S. desert area. I doubt if it will be any real use again. <laughs> the Prairie. Right yeah. off a, a full half the country. <laughs> and remember, he spent years trying to keep the Progressive Party on his good side. This is another thing where a very spiteful man. Yeah, but as, as soon as, like, uh, the liberal has any amount of power. Fuck him. Yeah, good fucking yeah, we don't need you my anymore. ass, yeah. bitch. As for the unemployed, he was hostile to federal relief and only reluctantly accepted the Keynesian solution that involved federal deficit spending, tax cuts, and subsidies to the housing market. The Federal Home Improvement Plan of 1937. <laughs> federal Home Improvement Plan? <laughs> Stop it. You mean like... <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's pretty good. That's fucking terrible. <laughs> they gave Tim it's Allen not even the noise that he made. Ten keys. Yeah, he goes. <laughs> no, yeah, that was a good bit. I like, like that one, Jesse. Yeah, that's what he does. Uh, Tim Allen got that gorilla grip. That's right. <laughs> Uh, provided subsidized rates of interest on rehabilitation loans to 67,000 homes while the Housing Act of 38 made provisions for the building of low-rent housing. So you may notice I didn't really touch on the year 1936 too much. (laughs) A very important year in global geopolitics as the Nazi party continues their march towards power and their desire for, quote, Lebensraum or living space for the German people. King had the Canadian High Commissioner in London inform Britain that They would not support the war with Germany. They would just simply be a neutral party unless Germany attacked Britain in Britain specifically. So he says, you know what? It's your thing. I'm not getting involved unless you guys are literally attacked by them. In 1937, uh, he would actually visit Mackenzie King. And this is an exact quote that I'm going to read from you. So sorry, Mackenzie King went to visit Hitler. Hitler. Sorry. Yes. He would go to Germany to visit Hitler. Possessing a religious yearning for direct insight into the hidden mysteries of life and the universe, and strongly influenced by the operas of Richard Wagner, who was also Hitler's favorite composer, King decided Hitler was akin to a mythical Wagnerian hero within whom good and evil were struggling. He thought that good would eventually triumph, and Hitler would redeem his people and lead to a harmonious, uplifting future. These spiritual attitudes not only guided Canada's relations with Hitler, but gave the Prime Minister a comforting sense of a higher mission, that of helping Hitler are helping to lead Hitler to peace. King commented in his journal that he is really one who truly loves his fellow men and his country and would make any sacrifice for their good. He forecast that the world will come to see a very great man mystic in Hitler. Yeah. I cannot abide in Nazism, the regimentation, cruelty, oppression of Jews, (laughs) attitudes towards religion, etc. which is such a funny, (laughs) I can't do that. That that sucks. But Hitler will rank someday with Joan of Arc among the great deliverers of his people. Oh my God. That's the Canadian prime minister on Adolf Hitler. That Nazi shit. I don't vibe with ghosts and the same music. Jesus Christ. You know, it's sad that it's a lost episode and we'll have to bring it back sometime, but like Nazi mysticism. Yeah. Nazi mysticism was such a thing. And, and and hearing this again, it always reminds me that people now are like, Oh, everyone hated Hitler and the Nazis at the time. Man, people thought it was sick until it started like getting into countries that were allies. I should clarify that this was not maybe other than the spiritual aspect a very uncommon belief at the time. Yeah, it Chamberlain might be, said the same thing. It yeah. might be uncommon in that he said what they're doing to the Jews is bad. Yeah. Really. Pretty much. Because a lot of people had also that sentiment. Yeah, there was a lot of anti-Semitism then, now, yeah. Uh, forever. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's almost surprising that he condemned that. Yeah. Um, it's but, so funny. But him championing like, championing Hitler is... Uh, as a messiah. To be fair, yeah. his, his also, praise was particularly effusive, which is not a good look. No. Just, King's commitment to neutrality and appeasement in my opinion, gutless, not uncommon, still gutless. Yeah, yeah. His government, bowing to pressure from Quebec, refused to make any amendments to their immigration policies to accept Jews fleeing persecution I know, yeah, from Germany. Yeah, they would turn away boats full of Jewish As a refugees. Of yeah. fact, this was highlighted by the famous refusal of 900 Jewish refugees aboard the MS St. Louis, a sailing ship that would be turned away by several countries, including the United States, yeah. Canada. These 900 Jewish refugees would be sent back to Germany. Many of them would go on to be exterminated in the Holocaust. We get to 1939 when King realizes that war is inevitable. And to his credit, he does a good job of mobilizing the troops even before the official start of the war. So Canada is pulled into the war when King George V declares that 
the British Empire is at war with Germany. King George the Sixth. One of the pedophiles named George. Uh, <laughs> curious George. <laughs> declares that Britain is at war. So Canada really tried to more so ingratiate themselves with the Americans than the British as they still want to be neutral as is possible, but they do mobilize their economy for war and actually do get really impressive results. This does, you know, kickstart economic recovery in the West. Essentially. I thought we waited in a, a ceremonial three days or something before joining the war because in World War One we were auto enrolled. So yeah. then in World War Two we're like, no, no, we're a sovereign nation. We're going to wait. You started this on Monday yeah. and Thursday. <laughs> we're we're going in. in. Yeah. Either way, by September of 39, they are a part of the war effort. Uh, so a lot of countries involved in the war kind of postpone their elections. They're like, oh, we have other things to focus on not king he's like no fuck it we're gonna run again so the 1940 election <laughs> is held and the liberals have 179 seats now damn because it's pretty difficult to beat you know the leader of a country at war yeah you get that big surge uh also it should be noted that part of the reason for their support was Mackenzie king vowed to avoid national conscription in the second world war having seen what it did to canada during the first world war mm. remember that Following the attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Japanese Canadians were categorized as enemy aliens under the War Measures Act, which began to remove their personal rights. Starting on December 8th, 1941, so just days after Pearl Harbor, 1,200 Japanese Canadian-owned fishing vessels were impounded as a defense measure. Boy, we've heard that one before. On January 14th, 1942, the federal government passed an order calling for the removal of male Japanese nationals between 18 and 45 years of age from a designated protected area 100 miles inland from the British Columbia coast and they enacted a ban on Japanese Canadian fishing during the entirety of the war they also banned shortwave radios and controlled the sale of gasoline and dynamite to Japanese Canadians King and his cabinet ignored reports from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and Canadian military that most of the Japanese were law abiding and not a threat Major General Ken Stewart told Ottawa I cannot see that the Japanese constitute the slightest menace to national security over 27,000 Japanese Canadians would be detained with thousands being deported back to Japan. So this is another moment that is an unequivocal black mark, not only on the legacy of William Lyon Mackenzie King, but Canada itself. And it's something that can't be ignored when discussing this man, that two of his most infamous policies were specifically targeted at Asian Canadians and Asian people in general with the Chinese Exclusion Act and then the Japanese War Measures Act. And also, like, with internment camps, first of all, not only, like, we had fucking internment camps, but they also, like took all Japanese citizens, houses, cars, everything, yep. and just sold them and then kept the profit for the government, I'm pretty yep. sure. So like private citizens, the yeah. government, like as soon as those houses were abandoned, they were ransacked. Didn't matter yeah. if it was an official government act or their next door neighbor just taking their fishing pole mm. and whatever money they had saved. These people, these generations were decimated. The ones that were released were released and faced, you know, scorn, shame, they were still branded as enemy aliens even after the war had ended and they came home to adverse poverty. Nothing left. No house, no goods, nothing. Mm -hmm. This is a fucking disgrace and they can issue all the apologies they want but at the end of the day, what was the main difference between the fucking Canadian policy and the early German policies towards Jews? Simply the fact that it didn't escalate here, but they were putting people in camps. They were dehumanizing them. They were treating them like fucking shit. They were stealing their name, their identity, all of their belongings. It is disgusting. And people wonder why these prejudices are still entrenched. Yeah, I fucking wonder. 
Let's talk about him fucking the rest of the country now. <laughs> so mostly white people. So that'll be good. We can balance it out. Well, a bit. that's yeah. No, I'm a, I'm all right with that. Conscription was a hotly contested issue in Canada during both world wars. English Canada still feeling some form of loyalty to the subhuman lizard people in Britain <laughs> uh, overwhelmingly supported the measure, whereas French Canadians coolly opposed it. In 1944, November of 44, the government decided it was necessary to send conscripts to Europe for the war. Four years earlier, they had promised to not send anybody. This led to a brief political crisis and mutiny by conscripts posted in British Columbia. Hmm. So they basically said, fuck you. We ain't going. Thankfully for them, the war ended a few months after they were actually set to be deployed and only about a couple hundred saw combat at all. Hmm. However, this walk back on conscription combined with the death of longtime political lieutenant Ernest Lapointe basically meant the end of the liberal stronghold over Quebec. With the war winding down, Mackenzie King held a federal election in 1945 and won a minority, but formed a functioning coalition to continue governing. King was actually defeated in his own riding in Prince Albert, but uh, fellow liberal William McDermott, who was reelected in the safe seat of Glengarry, gave his seat up so the prime minister could still, you know, sit in parliament. That's <laughs> nice of him. Yeah. King helped found the United Nations in 1945 and attended the opening meetings in San Francisco. However, he became pessimistic about the organization's future possibilities. All right. Got to give him that one. Yeah, he was right. <laughs> After the war, King quickly dismantled wartime controls. Unlike the first world war, press censorship ended with the hostilities. He began an ambitious, uh, an ambitious program of social reform and laid the groundwork for Newfoundland's later entry into Canada. Pretty good things. King's government greatly expanded the role of the National Research Council of Canada during the war, moving into full-scale research in nuclear physics for the commercial use of nuclear power. So good gains in the science department. However, all great things must come to an end, and some of the pretty bad ones too. January 20th, 1948, he calls on the Liberal Party to hold its first national convention since 1919 when he was elected leader as he realizes it's finally time to retire. The August convention chose uh, Louis St. Laurent as the new leader of the Liberal Party. He was a big king lieutenant. It's like that liberal chain of succession where you've got the one leader. He always has his favorite son, and it usually goes to them. Three months later, King would retire after 22 years as prime minister. He also had the most terms, six as prime minister, so he won six federal elections, mm. which is absurd to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, a uh, famous piece of shit, racist, genocideer, was the second longest serving prime minister with 19 years. And uh, Mackenzie King would actually die July 22nd, 1950 at his country estate in Kingsmere from pneumonia. Mm. Let's talk about his legacy. This is a man often cited, as we noted at the start of the show, as Canada's greatest prime minister. Uh, respondents uh, look to his time in office, his high-profile position, specifically during the Great Depression and Second World War, and his policy achievements in the mid to late 1940s. These are the things they champion as him being Canada's greatest prime minister. There is a tendency to view King as this progressive reformer, thanks largely to what was accomplished in the wake of the Great Depression and his personal and political closeness with FDR. <laughs> but the honest <laughs> truth is, Mackenzie King had to be dragged kicking and screaming to doing anything halfway decent for anybody in this fucking country. As we noted multiple times, the only reason he passed any early legislature is because he needed the votes of the progressive party. And the only reason why he passed anything in the wake of the great depression is because the country was literally exploding and mm. would die if he didn't. Yeah. And he, he also, uh, greatly admired FDR, yeah. even if he didn't agree with like the new deal. Once he saw the way the winds were blowing, he realized he had to follow suit and it's, and he was pretty slow on it too, from <laughs> what you were talking about. It took years that being said you can't at the same time 
poo-poo those achievements because a lot of them were really integral into creating the social safety net that mm-hmm. would come to define this country. But there's a lot of revisionism when it comes to Mackenzie King and saying, oh, look at all he did without acknowledging a, his incredibly difficult views on Hitler and his belief that he was some great man akin to a fucking Wagnerian opera hero. Obviously, his treatment of Asian Canadians is deplorable and a black stain. Mm-hmm. Now, he did express a genuine passion and love for politics. Not good politics, but politics. I would say, yeah, expressing a genuine passion for politics uh, is uh, evil. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that's what gets you in sign. this situation yeah. that we're in right now. Exactly. <laughs> Which is to say, not good. No, yeah, we're all evil brain rot lords. So he's uh, anti-monarchy stance, especially on war. Yeah, that's chill. Pretty good. I like that one. I respect that he fucking hated the British and he would actually <laughs> rather ally himself with the United States as opposed to be anywhere near those lizard people. Yeah, that was cool. I respect the fact that he was a TikTok witch. Yeah. Uh, he he hexed the, the moon. Dead. Yeah, he hexed the moon. That's what cost him the nineteen thirty election. I respect the fact that he was incel, volcel, gay. Def- definitely gay. Asex, so, maybe. He could have been ace. Yeah. My theory is because we don't really have any knowledge of him being into mysticism pre-1900. So I think it was the combination of missing his mother on the deathbed and the death of his best friend and roommate, Henry Uh. Albert Harper, that pushed him towards the realm of the spirits. It's interesting, yeah, because in all of my readings, I didn't find any mention of him trying to talk to Harper. No, uh, which maybe are, like this is like fan can like this is a like a fandom fan fiction now. Uh, he didn't want to talk about it. I think that is correct. Yeah. I think because this was like the only person that treated him decently and actually liked him during the entirety of his like early twenties, <laughs> like the first twenty years of his life, he's just this like loser nerd. Yeah, like even like uh, what was it called? The first Quebec, yeah, the first Quebec conference. FDR and Churchill meet up for the first time in Montreal uh, to plan the war, yeah, basically. War and FDR is like, oh, like, William Lyon Mackenzie King should join us because we're like, you know, we're doing this in Canada. Yeah. And like, he's, you know, a partner in the war. And Churchill says, no, I'd rather he not be there. <laughs> oh my God. To be fair, that's also because he was like, yeah, we're just going to be neutral. Like, you guys are on your own. And Churchill was like, what the fuck? Like you, you have to help us, but yes, it is also because he was, he was a little freak and no one really (laughs) wanted him around. He was a little nerd. He was a little nerd who, how do you keep winning elections? Because he he give good speeches. They were okay. I think it's just the fact that he genuinely was very smart and like very astute when it came. Yeah, to he was a smart guy, instincts. but like he had no charisma whatsoever. No. It sounds like he did what he needed to do to get the votes. Like people compare him to FDR, but I think his best comparison point is he's the flip side of Stephen Harper, where like he fought and clung to power desperately. He had this disdain for any kind of higher office above him that constrained his power. He was willing to negotiate and do everything, but instead of passing conservative reform, he had to negotiate with the fucking progressive and in a passing progressive conform reform, but he was just so singularly focused on consolidating power and being this massive master political figure that he didn't have time to have sex with his wife in the case of Harper or take a wife in the case of King, both of them. I'm not sure either like Ben Harper is actually Stephen Harper's child. I don't think Stephen Harper is ever (laughs) fucked. (laughs) <laughs> is my personal opinion. Right, yeah. I, I think, think he's like a Ken doll down there. Yeah, he's, he's got nothing. He's got the Weinstein dick. Yeah, yeah. It's all rotted. He's a Castrati. 
Castrati? Yeah. Castrati. Is that how you say it? Sorry. uh, (laughs) Mackenzie King can be viewed. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oopsie. As this. Shrewd political op- operator, a man who was completely uninteresting in everything except for his strange connection to the spiritual realm, his regular consultation of ghosts to try and get his <laughs> life together. This is a man who really was like ahead of the game in setting the trend for like every e-girl where like he has a bad time. But instead of getting bangs, he just finds a bunch of mediums and joins Leonardo da Vinci's pussy posse. And he's yeah. into like dogs. His hobbies were like ghosts and dogs. Yeah. And that's like <laughs> and all dogs that's known and Japanese internment. Personality. Yeah, he really, he was kind of like a trad woman, you know? Yeah. He had that going on for Yeah, him. He, if he didn't do the whole like Asian internment thing, he would have totally been like characteristic weeb you know what I mean (laughs) like yeah I got my pets and like yeah I speak to Leonardo if anime existed back then I have no doubt he would have done Japanese internment (laughs) now the Chinese thing would have still happened it would have turned around history but he could have very potentially gotten into like if Astro Boy was like 15 years earlier we could be talking about a whole different thing we might actually have like he might have ceded control of Canada to the Imperial (laughs) Japanese he would have been that guy then he uh, would have pledged fealty to Hero yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He would have been that guy who shows up to every party and eventually, like, halfway through the party, he's like, hey, guys, um, I, I don't know if you've watched this before, but, like, Evangelion's really good. Have you ever <laughs> heard of Evangelion? It, it does have the religious symbolism he likes. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I Googled his hobbies, and I found it only had two results. <laughs> and the first was that he liked to gather stones from pre-Confederation buildings being demolished in Ottawa. And That's then the build them at his house in Kingsmere. Uh, and he erected many battered ruins, which he felt had a Middle Ages look. Homie, what now? <laughs> and then the other thing was the psychic thing, but it says he also uh, really used crystal balls a lot, which is a whole That's other way. He's a fucking it, theater yeah. kid, man. Crystal balls also. But he's not he was an arho. But he was never in the theater. He was not charismatic. Okay, he was just, he was just, he was I can't believe he just an built small are you saying structures the all kids around are his lawn and was like, these <laughs> are <laughs> Theater kids are like anti-charisma. They're like black holes for charisma. Yeah, they, like they, they do have a power, but it's sort of like a negative power. Yeah, That's fine. Yeah. But there's like still a negative some, energy field. There's still yeah. something there. Like if you read Mackenzie King, you wouldn't get any reading one way or the other. That's true. He's perfectly neutral in terms of policies, personal. Personality. That's because he's transcended because he's an enlightened centrist. That's, That's true. Right. He doesn't need sex anymore. <laughs> I bet he never jacked off. Do you think Mackenzie King ever came? Uh, he, pro- he has oh, no cum energy. He has no fat Because like they, in- they invented graham crackers to stop people from touching their penis. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I bet he, if you want. Not graham crackers, wasn't it? Um, it was no, Kellogg cereal. It was also graham crackers. Really? Yeah. I took a, I took a course with uh, Professor Stephen Maynard. I thought, was, I thought it was like wheat thins or something. Cornflakes. Cornflakes. It was cornflakes to get you to stop jacking it. Mm-hmm. What? So Cornflakes makes me jack That's more. the thing. Do you, think, do you think masturbation was like a common practice or even existed back then? Do you think they knew how to do that? <laughs> yes. What the hell are you talking about? I, I just, you never hear about anybody from that time period jacking off. It's because you never Because if read... you wrote about it, you would go to hell. <laughs> it's because you, you never jacked off, you would go okay, to hell forever. I just Jesse, you just Wilde, needed dude. to read like lesbian Victorian fiction. Or Oscar Wilde. Or he Oscar Wilde. He would see images in his shaving cream. 
He's cool. He's like a tea leaf reader. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. A tea but, leaf but he's reader. doing it with fucking shaving cream. He's a TikTok witch. There he's you a go. TikTok uh, now, witch. Uh, for like a, a special like Halloween episode, maybe like a live episode, mm-hmm. we should try to do a seance and contact William Lyon Mackenzie King. <laughs> I wish I knew what he sounded. And then like. if that fails, we could do uh, Jordan Peterson again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Tony Soprano. Yeah, he'll be dead by then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll get James Gandolfini in here. Yeah. I don't want to disturb him. Oh, what the fuck are you talking about? No. Uh, so that was William Lyon Mackenzie King, an off disgust episode that we finally got around to doing almost a year to the day that we discussed Sir John A. McDonald. We want to keep going through some of these so-called greatest Canadians. And mm. He was pretty great and he wasn't uh, boring. So what's funny is that he is 49th. And although we've obviously talked about the disdain for a lot of what he did, I don't know how you can make an argument that Don Cherry was more was yeah. forty times more important than this man. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck is going on? It's so fucked Even up. Even Wayne Gretzky, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Like, yeah, sure. Wayne can be up there. But it's but like, what did Don Cherry do that was more consequential than creating the old age pension system? He, he wrote that rap about that's rock true. Yeah, that rap was pretty rock and okay. rock em, wham bam. Uh, what about? Okay, uh, what does Don Cherry have stacked up to comparing to, like, you know, getting Canada out of the Great Depression? This um, needs to be a good that um, rap. He got us out of our spiritual depression. Yeah, yeah. Of lacking. Yeah. He gave every fights. Canadian guy over forty a personality. He put go. he put Canada's groove back. That is true. We we, we had lost our groove at that. We point. lost our groove. <laughs> so, he single handedly kept Fabricland afloat for years, <laughs> and then he also he also hated Europeans. That is so. sick. Like he was right. He yeah. was justified in that. Yeah. We have a few ideas that we'll make this kind of off and on, but if you have yeah, somebody that is the greatest Canadian that you would like us to cover, let us know. Yeah. And we'll only cover them if they're interesting. Because we've, we've right. got a if few If you give ideas. us a bum-ass suggestion, we're never covering If it. you say Avril Lavigne, I will listen to the entire Avril Lavigne discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I have yeah, no issue with that. Megan, I, that'll be a Megan and Jesse exclusive. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did love her when I was seven-ish. Yeah. So. I've met her. She's dated my cousin. Weird wow. fact. Your cousin dated the 40th greatest Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> and I dated the ninth greatest Canadian. Yeah. Chance's <laughs> right, cousin baby. is the singer of Nickelback. You guys didn't know. Yeah, that. actually, I'm related. Chance My name is Chance Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> I've been meaning to drop that, but Excellent. I just couldn't get around to it. Well, that was a rip-roaring episode of the Late Late Capitalism Show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back at you again next week with more of that good good in the meantime talk to the spirits play with your crystal balls and please don't be racist towards asian canadians mackenzie king has already put them through two lifetimes worth of struggling thank you so much bye-bye love you peace out